You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Dan Tippins, good to see you again. Dan Kaufman, what's up, man? It's funny how when you start these things, you have to act like you're just greeting each other. <laughs> but in reality, we've been we've been we've been fighting the um, the computer gods for the last forty minutes, trying to get the damn thing to work. Yeah, I know. Well, we get a, a nice like bit of play acting. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So let me welcome everyone in the Sophia audience. Um, I'm with Dan Tippins, uh, my partner in crime, co-editor of the Electric Agora, and uh, doctoral student in philosophy at the University of Miami. Have I gotten that about right? You've gotten everything about right. Yeah. It must be hard uh, going to graduate school down there because there's just people walking around in bikinis all over the place, right? Yeah, and it's always men. It's always men walking around in bikinis. <laughs> and now, well, myself included, it's very it's very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, I, that's something I don't need to see. Um, um, and and you are Daniel Kaufman. Oh, yeah, that's right. Who am I? I'm Daniel Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State. Editor. And other partner in crime, right? That's right, editor of the Electric Agora, other partner in crime. Older, fatter Dan tippins all that <laughs> i mean you said you, it, have, you have all this to look forward to is all that i can say to you <laughs> decrepit are you just telling me that like looking at you is just looking into the future that's right decrepitude obesity <laughs> in fact didn't you show me a picture of your younger self one time and we were pretty much spitting images of one another yeah yeah we were pretty much pretty 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 much pretty close and I think uh, it was actually really creepy um yeah. correctly in fact and then i remember looking at some childhood photos of mine wasn't there like a kaufman bridge or something yeah, you were standing was like, underneath this pavilion called d kaufman pavilion and it was like right behind me in one of my childhood photos when i was you know six years old that's mad. That's just the universe mad. speaking to me and over time, right? That's right. I was looking for you. Um, <laughs> so um, today we're going to – so a few months ago I published an essay called Philistinism and Philosophy, and we're going to talk about that um, mostly because we're interested in sort of the heart of it, which is the question of what – what the role of, of arts and letters broadly construed. So that's going to include everything from uh, visual arts, literature, even cuisine. I'm going to include in this, uh, in this category, sort of what, what do these distinctively do for us and, and why is it important? Yeah. Um, um, such that yeah. Philistinism, as I'm going to define it as a problem. So that, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, yeah, and this is this is at the level of you know popular culture, ordinary daily behavior, academia. You know, philistinism broadly construed, its presence in in kind of society. Yeah, yeah. So that that's going to be our our target. And um, by the way, can you see me okay, or is it dark? Um, it's a little dark, but it's not too bad. I mean, if you if you if you have better lighting options, I mean, you look a little bit like you're in a torture chamber. <laughs> that's that's pretty awful to hear you say because I'm actually on my couch in my living room. Oh, gee. <laughs> There's no decorations, man. Why are there no decorations? Why is it you look, you look like you're in a fucking insane asylum? <laughs> you know why? Why? 
Philistinism, man. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> <laughs> and if you look over, you'll see just like terrible cuisine. It's just nasty candy, right? Oh, oh my god, that's it. But that's just because you're poor. <laughs> you had no problem I mean, eating high I'm quality sure cuisine that, when I'm I came to visit. We talked about how you're not supposed to disclose that info on here. <laughs> Because I can recall the last time I was in Miami, you had no problem eating in Michelin star restaurants. I mean, you didn't have, didn't have, you had no objection, from right. what I recall. So I, I did not have an objection. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we'll we'll do this sort of maybe a little bit like you interviewing me, just because I wrote the essay. But I'm sure it'll just it'll eventually it'll just turn into a, a conversation between the two of us. Um, so yeah, you, you want to start? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the best the best place to start is just with the question of what is Philistinism as as you construe it, how you wanna how you wanna understand it here. Right. So, I mean, you know, I think actually some people get kind of annoyed when I publish the essay because I think most people, when 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 you hear the word Philistinism, you you, you know, you hear somebody call somebody a Philistine, it sort of means that they have you know lousy taste. I mean, that's sort of part of it. But um, what I mean by this is um, uh, a person who um, either is incapable of or refuses to sort of appreciate the significance, the, the, the value and significance of arts and letters broadly construed as I've, as I've, uh, as I've just described. Um, so this is the person who either deliberately, um, chooses to sort of not, uh, engage with and value those sorts of things or the person who, uh, is incapable of it. And, you know, there can be, you know, whatever number of reasons for all of those, which we can get to, but that, but that's, that's what I mean by it. So it's, it's the person yeah. who just, for whom the arts, arts and letters are just not a part of their lives. Um, uh, that's what I mean by the Philistine. Yeah, so the, Philist, the Philistine um, can be the Philistine can be by you know a product of society or something almost more culpably chosen, right? Like yeah. So so I, I mean, it's, you know, not, it's yeah. not a class bound thing, right? So I mean, so in other in other words, um, you could have you know in other words, this this is something that cuts across. Uh, Level, class, uh, race, right. gender, and it's not, it's not in any way, um, uh, tied to a particular, uh, population, right? So, so, um, um, you know, you could have, uh, you know, a, a, a French, a French farmer who lives in a village somewhere who has a remarkably sophisticated, uh, palate. And then you could have, you know, uh, a Manhattan lawyer. Um, uh, who, you know, uh, because he's a sort of health and fitness nut, um, you know, all he eats are sort of protein powders and kale and shit like that. And, and, you know, so, so, you know, he would be a Philistine on that with respect to that particular thing. Um, despite the fact that he, he's, you know, in uh, among the one percenter, if you want to call him. So uh, no, yeah. I don't think it has any, I don't think it's tied in any way to class. By the way, that's actually that's actually kind of uh, I think a striking feature of the Philistinism you're describing is precisely the fact that it's so ubiquitous that it actually occurs across classes, across races. Yeah, right? and even just, even education, le- even yeah, even education levels, right? Even it just shows yeah. what a deep seated feature it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, if it cuts across all of these these boundaries. Yeah. 
So that, that's what I'm talking about. And um, I think it's really neglected. Um, you know, in the essay, I said, you know, nobody talks about this on philosophy. And um, um, part of it is because philosophy itself suffers from a lot of institutionalized Philistinism, not to mention the Philistinism of individual uh, prof- professionals. Yeah. Um, so, so, so philosophy, they don't talk about it. It's not, just, but it's partly because philosophy itself is played with this problem. Um, but it's also because of certain attitudes, uh, uh, that one finds that are pretty common in philosophy, um, that we can, you know, talk about if we, when we talk about the, uh, the different, the different sort of, uh, sources of Philistinism, of which I, in the essay, I list, uh, I list a number of them. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny too, um, I had a, a speaker at Miami uh, come by, a visiting speaker, and he gave a talk on, on fiction and literature. And uh, in the end, he ended up concluding essentially that um, you don't really learn anything from fiction or literature in any kind of substantial sense. I mean, you get, you get entertainment and um, you get entertainment value and you get maybe some facts about the world in virtue of the, the author doing some history and overlaying some facts about the, our world in the fiction novel itself. But he basically was trying to make the argument that essentially, like, besides that, you don't really get too much out of fiction. And so I was going to say, this, this is a way to actually clarify what you mean when you say someone who doesn't value or engage in these kinds of practices. I mean, I still consider the, uh, the people in my, you know, maybe a couple of people who in my department who think that fiction is just literature, the arts, they're just entertainment value. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a classic example. I mean, there's somebody who's highly educated um, and, you know, maybe he's poor in the way that professors are, but, um, or at least some professors are in so far as they're not, they're not that handsomely paid, but he's certainly not lower class. Right. Yeah. Um, and nonetheless, he's a Philistine, at least with respect to literature. And probably you'd find out given that, that's his take on it. You probably find out he's a Philistine with respect to music and, and, and a number of other things as well. So, um, so yeah, I think it's actually quite uh, common. It's quite common in educated circles. Um, um, and um, I think it's actually a really bad. Uh, and yeah. I think that it's very underestimated. Um, and, and maybe when we, when we get into talking about why it's bad, I can try to explain why, you know, this is not, this is not just sort of, you know, some, some, uh, cultural snob or estate sort of, you know, trying to say, Oh, isn't it terrible that all these people out here are walking around and, and with shitty taste. Um, it's, I think that there's, that there's a serious problem because I think that the, the arts and letters do very important things for us. And this attitude, this Philistine attitude, it's not, it doesn't just hurt the disciplines, right? It, it's sort of, it's hurting higher education. I mean, I think that it's part of the reason why um, arts and letters are, are, are becoming to be, to be less and less a part of, of a student's higher education at my own university. Um, if you, if you'd been a student 25 years ago, you would have, as a matter of routine, studied a lot more arts and letters than you do now. Right. Yeah. And um, that's because of, uh, uh, if you look at the reasons, if you, if, if, bother to sort of investigate well where did they go and why did they why did they go away you'll find a lot of the sorts of philistinism that i talk about in the essay um um, and so i do think this is very serious it's not just about 
cultural snobbery or aestheticism or anything yeah. like that. I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit too. I mean, I think that, the, and we'll get to this, I believe, at the end, hopefully. Um, you know, Philistinism is also uh, kind of the, one of the causal sources of people, of, of our political situation, I think. Um, I don't disagree. It's very, it's connected to a. It's also connected to anti-intellectualism. It's connected to other, you know, which is sort of ironic because some of the biggest Philistines are intellectuals, but then yeah. again, some of the biggest anti-intellectuals are intellectuals. I mean, you can be an anti-intellectual with respect to a portion. You know, I would say that someone like Lawrence Krauss um, or some of these other philosophy bashers are are intellectual anti-intellectuals. Right. Um, um, and so, um, uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and, and I'm sure I'm sure that we'll get to part of that. Um, and you know, the other thing I was going to say was it's also interesting that um, discussions about philistinism have indirectly come up in some of my philosophy of education courses uh, or classes at UM here, because um, you know, one of the one of the goals of the philosophy of education rationalist tradition has been fostering autonomy in individuals. And they thought that the natural candidate to give you autonomy was critical thinking, by which they focused on a kind of rational basis for thought. Right? Sounds like applied logic. Pretty much applied logic, yeah, in, in one form or another, right? And, um, you know, one of the things that I've ended up arguing in class a lot, which hopefully we can discuss a little later, is precisely that if you want autonomy, actually reading literature, looking at the arts, trying to engage in these forms of activities is extremely important for developing certain cognitive tools um, that we use to combat all sorts of persuasive influences on us. Yeah. Yeah. So, but speaking of the philosophy of education and the rationalization, or I'm sorry, the rationality centric, you know, approach, um, how about you tell us some of the conditions under which you think, uh, you know, Philistinism takes hold in society? So I, um, I list a number of them in the essay, um, but three strike me as significant, right? So one source of Philistinism is what I called an overly, an overly excitable moral sense, right? So um, a certain type of moralist who considers moral considerations overriding in a certain way, right, um, uh, is often led to a kind of Philistinism as a result. And so, you know, a classic example of a Philist, of someone whose Philistinism is the result of um, an overly an overly excitable moral sense is, is Peter Singer, right? Yeah. So Peter Singer, um, because of his utilitarianism, is an ethical vegan – which, and I'm sure this will make people upset, is by definition uh, Philistine with respect to cuisine, um, because simply because it it, mean, it it means before you even start, you're ruling out yeah. something like 80 percent of world cuisine, um, which which um, is a form of uh, Philistinism. Um, He's also, because of his utilitarianism, and actually it was here on Blogging Heads. I think he was talking with Bob Wright, so people can, can look at it. Um, and I'll probably, in the links, I'll link to the dialogue. He, he right flat out said that people should not support museums. Yeah. Um, because, you know, because pot children in Africa, right? I mean, that's, 
that's that's the answer to everything, right? Um, in terms of you know, so long as the, as there are potbellied children in Africa, you shouldn't be doing anything, according to a utilitarian. You shouldn't be doing anything that has to do with um, the cultivation of taste, the development of sensibility, you know, because yeah. there are more important things um, um, out there. So 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 an overly active moral sense is one of the sources of certain brands of Philistinism. You know, and there's there's this interesting um, topic that I remember discussing with a friend recently, which maybe you could say something about. An overly excitable moral sense, another reason why you might think that leads to phil- Philistinism in society is some of the best art um, and artists engage in morally problematic behavior. In fact, yeah. um, I will say that some of my probably most you know, influential moments in life where I've learned to have slightly different outlooks on things and view people different ways are precisely when I've been in some shit with people in one way or another. Right. Um, when you look, we, we look, we could do a whole discussion on this, right? I mean, you and I have talked about doing something on comedy, right? I mean, we can branch out from see Brie Peter Singer, which really only concerns, you know, in this case, cuisine and, um, and, 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 and support of the fine arts. Um, I'm assuming he would say the same thing about supporting a local symphony or supporting, you know, um, but you know, this goes out to every corner of the sort of the, the rat maze of social justice tunnels. Right. I mean, I mean, it's everywhere. Right. I mean, uh, uh, comedians, right. I'm sure that there are plenty of people who are going to say, you know, um, you know, don't find you know who are going to refuse to, to refuse to find humor in and in, in things that are that they deem to be morally uh, uh, inappropriate. Um, um, and we know there's been a whole battle. I mean that comedians now you know are refusing to go uh, speak on college campuses uh, for this reason to perform on college campuses. Yeah. Um, you know, same thing with literature, visual arts. There's actually just uh, I, I, I remember reading this not very long ago. Um, there are people who are trying to get the Balthus paintings removed from the Met because Balthus painted very young girls uh, nude. Um, And um, I think to their credit, I think they said absolutely not. (laughs) We're not going to remove them. Um, But um, so, yes, I mean, you can sort of see this. And, you know, right now we're in the kind of the Me Too moment, right? And um, we're being, you know, I mean, uh, I just read an essay somewhere which asked whether, you know, Chuck Close has just been accused of sexual harassment. <laughs> and so now people are, I read an, an article that said, you know, should Chuck Close's paintings be taken out of museums or should they have warning labels next to them, right? Right. So, I mean, so the, the moral ground, the, the moral ground from which Philistinism grows right now is very large, right? I mean, I mean, and it cuts across media. It cuts across even, you know, from, from, from everything from cuisine to support for the arts to specific artistic performances to, um, so that's one major source of Philistinism. And perhaps today it's, it's, it's in the top of sources. Um, the second one that I identify that I think is, um, significant, Especially in the in the in the in the academy, but I would argue that this has seeped out into the popular consciousness as well, and that is Philistinism can grow out of an excessive regard for radiocination 
um, and radiocinative values, as well as from a kind of uh, sci- an, ex- an excessive regard for scientific yeah. inquiry, right? So this sort of captures both a certain type of a typically analytic philosopher who's going to think that the only way that you ever come to know something, that the only epistemically respectable activities are logic, mathematics, and the empirical sciences, and that the rest is just, as you would say, entertainment, right? Right. Um, And then there is a brand of scientistic scientists who also thinks something similar that about what's epistemically respectable, but who has a further, there's a further dimension. And that is they tend to be sort of reductive or eliminative materialists. And so they're going to even want to take the products of artistic uh, activity and try to sort of either explain them away or reduce them to some underlying physiological process and so on and so forth. And so that's a second sort of source uh, of philistinism that plagues analytic philosophers, it plagues uh, scientists, and to the extent to which these attitudes and values have kind of seeped into the public consciousness, um, it plagues it there too. I don't think it's an accident that arts programs are the first ones on the chopping block um, in, in, in K through 12, uh, in the K through 12 school system. And it's because there's this sort of notion that, that they don't really do anything serious or important. Right. Again, yeah. they're just a form of entertainment. And, you know, we only, it's you know, funny though is you'd only, you'd only believe that if you're a Philistine, right? <laughs> well, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. It's just a funny self-propagating system in that way. Right. Yes. Well, Philistinism certainly begets more Philistinism, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, and then the third is largely a popular uh, phenomenon, but it kind of affects a lot of people. Um, if you, if you, can I, can I, can I say yeah, something really quickly on the um, on the on the previous one about? Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Go ahead. Logocentrism and scientism. Yeah. You know, one yeah. one thing that I've always found just interesting is um, typically Philistines in in the academy. Um, when you're trying to talk, you know, it's, it's almost part of their methodology is to be Philistine, is to be a Philistine. So, for example, when you're, trying to, yeah, so when you're trying to understand what is beauty or what is art, so for example, some philosophers who are Philistines might try to understand this in terms of the brain, right? Right. Um, and I'm saying that level of description is itself devoid of any kind of, like, artistic enjoyment. Right. Uh, that's why. That's why I said that you know, any sort of reductive or eliminative materialism yeah. is going to sort of engender philistine attitudes because it's going to take you away from the aesthetic dimension yeah. to a lower level of description in which there are no aesthetic properties. Right? Because aesthetic properties only exist at the level of, 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 of personal response and representation. Right. Yeah. And so once you go down to the level of, you know, biochemistry and stuff, there aren't any, there's no, there are no aesthetic properties. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, um, it, yes, I mean, that, that's, I, I, I would think, I would say that aside from the logocentrism, it's the reductive and eliminative materialism. That's the other that's that's the main source within this category of of philistine attitudes yeah yeah, yeah i think that's right yeah um this last one yeah so the last one is one that really cuts across a lot of demographics 
um, but it operates more in the in the in the normal ordinary everyday culture, and that is there's a Philistinism that's born out of certain kinds excessive regard for certain kinds of material well-being, and I'm 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 casting material pretty loosely, right? Um, so. I'll just give three examples, right? I mean, and then this will sort of show you the scope of, of what I'm, of what I'm talking about here. So, so one example is sort of the person, sort of the health and fitness, you know, lunatic, right? Yeah. Uh, who, for who, who thinks of, let's say food as nothing but fuel. Yeah. I know people like this, right? And so, and so. It's becoming more popular. Yeah. 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 It's, 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 you know, I, 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 you, you, I always marvel at the the, the 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 lengths people will go to which to deny themselves some of the some of the richest experiences that make being alive worth it, right? Um, you know, these people they want to stay alive for what for forever, and I can't imagine what for, right? You know, if you told me I was going to spend my whole life, you know, eating kale and drinking, you know, protein shakes. I'd say I'd want to live a lot shorter, right? Um, I wouldn't want to live longer, right? Um, um, so I, I, aside from the fact that I find it, you know, weird and weird and bizarre, um, it's a very common thing, right? So you see these sort of health and fitness nuts. We've now even developed a technology to make it possible to sort of, you know, monitor this in an even more manic sort of fashion. That's these yeah. these ridiculous Fitbits and other devices that people wear. Um, to sort of, you know, so that they can track every breath they take, every step they take, every calorie they consume. Right. And, you know, this is, so this is one type of person, right? Um, the, the person for whom food is fuel and, and all that they're thinking about is, is the material effect on their, on their, uh, physical health. Um, a second, a second version of this, um, comes out of, you know, there's a certain kind of, very success oriented person, sort of like, you know, I, I don't want to call it sort of the greedy type, but you know, the, the Gordon Gecko type, let's say, um, um, for whom arts and letters and beauty just in general are just a waste of time. Right. I mean, I mean yeah. um, and to the extent that they enjoy things, it's purely as entertainment. Um, um, and it's purely just, you know, uh, for the sake of, uh, a sort of pleasure construed in a very, yeah, uh, base sort of way. Or um, maybe because their friends invited them. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, they, 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 they have art because it's worth money and, and, and it's part of their social status and stuff like that, but they don't right. give a shit less about it. Um, so, you know, that's another sort, that's a sort of another type. Yeah. The health um, net. Um, but even there's even yet a third type, you know, that I've been, I've been thinking about more and more, um, you know, there's this kind of, there's this kind of spiritual psychic version of the health fitness nut, right? So sort of, you know, you know, there's sort of, you know, um, these very Spartan kind of philosophies, um, and disciplines that sort of, you know, are all about simplifying and, 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 you know, you know, yeah. just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm talking about, you know, eat nothing but white rice and, you know, yeah. like eat one raisin it's at called, a time. It's called, it's called like life hacking, right? Like <laughs> hacking your life and focusing on all these minute little things and like making yeah, your life. Just sort of, I don't know, missing, missing the whole damn point of it. Right. I mean, I mean, um, I mean, part of the point of it is it, it 
it all stems from, and I, I think that there's something about the effort to exercise too much control. Yeah. That is at odds because part of really um, embracing and engaging with arts and letters is somewhat to lose control of yourself. I mean, is somewhat to, is somewhat to lose yourself in an experience to, to immerse yourself in an experience and all these kinds of um, regimens and disciplines, which involves this constant self monitoring. Um, uh, I find also to be a source of Philistinism. Yeah. Um, I mean, another, yeah, another, another related point is um, obsession, obsession with efficiency, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. And that, and that plagues all of the types that I just talked about. I mean, that's involved. Exactly. Um, Cause I mean, this, this plays out in, in all the collective action stuff that we see with um, the idea that people want to basically be, you know, morally pool their behavior, right? So everyone, does a little bit to contribute to a much broader cause. And as long as enough people do something or perform the same kind of activity, like, you know, recycling or whatever will solve the problem. But the idea is this is again, something it's, it's focusing again on like quick and easy kinds of results each day. Right. And the problem is that's just not how the arts and literature go. Right. That's something you might have to take your time. You can't just speed your way through Dostoevsky, right? Right, and there's no, and there's no, and there may not be, you know, sort of measurable progress. You know what I mean? It's not that kind of a thing. Um, and oftentimes, it requires quite a lot of engagement before one really gets, starts to get out of something what there is to get out of it. I'm, um, um, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about this when we talk about, uh, you know, what the arts and letters do do for us, but. Um, so these are these are three of the area the the, the the things in the in the essay that I talk about as being major sources of Philistinism, and I did concentrate somewhat on the ethical, more on the ethical and the philosoph- philosophical scientific. Not because I think that those necessarily are the biggest. Um, they're probably not. Probably the third one, the one, the last one we discussed is the largest. But because, um, you know, I'm interested in philosophy and I'm interested in what ails philosophy. And I think that this is part of what ails philosophy. Yeah. Um, um, I think it's part of the reason uh, for philosophy's poor fortunes uh, in the academy today. Um, and so that's why I focus my attention there. On, on yeah. the ethical and the and the and the and the second one, the scientific slash philosophical. So we'll probably spend most of our time talking about those. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, what a you know a perfect a perfect kind of segue is a little bit of a two part question. One one would be kind of you know what's the problem? What's the problem? So that are, what are the problems that arise from philistinism in say philosophy or ethical theory? Um, and the corollary question is you know. What do arts and letters do for us um, in terms of function? Not yet in terms of why it's even valuable. Just what do we get? Yeah. From it? Yeah. So first of all, what's the cost? And I guess these are all sort of wrapped together. Um, um, right. You know, you know, what's the cost? What do arts actually do for us? And why is what they do for us valuable? Um, um, so, so, you know, I'll give you an example. So I just had a discussion not long ago with Brian Van Norden about about the absence of uh, about the sort of the 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 insular somewhat isolated um quality of modern uh, analytic philosophy um 
now he attributed it to he, he he's attributing it to racism, right? Right. He's saying, well, the reason why we're not reading Confucius and and Tao and all this Taoism and all this sort of stuff is because there's sort of all sorts of racist uh, threads within the history of Western philosophy, and he goes to some some length to sort of to sort of give a historical story about uh, those where those threads originate. He 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 lays a lot of it at the feet of Kant. Um, but you know, as we talked about it, um, I realized that you know I don't think that he's actually got the right that he's got the right target. Um, because yeah. as I pointed out to him, you're just as unlikely to read Montaigne right. um, in a, or Giovanni Pico della Mirandola um, in a analytic philosophy program as you are unlikely to read Confucius. As a matter of fact, I think probably you're more likely to read Confucius just because there very likely may be an Asian philosophy class. Yeah. Um, but you won't you won't read Montaigne uh, unless unless there's a special thing devoted to it. It won't be part of the normal I mean, cycle. Even, I, mean, I mean, even even like Camus, right? Right. You won't read. Right. I mean. Yeah. Right. You won't read, and you won't read. Um, you certainly won't read philosophically inclined literature, right? Yeah. Um, um, but I'm even. I mean, I'm. I'm even happy to just sort of stay within what at least is widely recognized historically as being philosophy, right? Right. Um, you're not going to read Montaigne, and you probably aren't going to read Pascal's Pensee. You're probably not going to read, you know, and what I said to Van Norden was I said, you know, I don't know if I think this is racism as much as I think it's, it's a kind of Philistinism, right? Right. And it's a Philistinism born out of especially analytic philosophies overestimation of the value of, of value of logic and of science. Um, and so the direct cost in terms of, of, of philosophy is it very much narrows the scope of philosophical reading, right? So if you, if, if you're being, edu- if you're being formally educated in philosophy, it's going to have the effect of narrowing the scope of your education. So I think if you, you know, interview philosophy, you know, new philosophy PhDs are just coming out of graduate school asking how much Montaigne or Pascal or other sort of essayist, you know, how much, how much Erasmus have you read? How much, you know, how much, um, uh, you're going to get little to none. Right. Um, and that then affects the kind of philosophy that they do, right? So it affects yeah. contemporary philosophy, right? So you, you, you literally cannot publish in professional journals philosophy that is in a literary vein. I mean, it, it, is, yeah. it is almost impossible. Now I'm not saying that, you know, if you, if you know, if you're if you're the late Bernard Williams, right? Right. <laughs> you might be able to, um, but that's just simply because you know your reputation is so huge and you're held in such high esteem that you can pretty much do whatever you want. Um, but for us, you know, for all us poor jerks, you know, working down in the normal in the normal universe amongst the mortals, um, um, what you can publish. You know, I've tried to, you know, uh, you know, I've had no problem publishing. I mean, I've, I'm pretty successful in terms of my, my publish, academic publishing, but I've never been able to, to get anything really literary published. Um, um, and that's, right. and I, and I think that that's for this reason. So in philosophy, it, it's manif- it, it, the, the problem with it is that it wildly, narr- widely narrows, narrows, very much narrows the scope of what yeah. is t- typically read in a philo- in part of a philosophy education. And then that means that the kind of philosophy that contemporary professionals produce is going to be very narrow, very technical, 
um, and and just pretty much avoid that whole. And even the even the stuff in aesthetics. So aesthetics is a branch of philosophy. Yeah, most of it is really technical, and you've got, yeah. of course, like you'd expect, these frick fucking miserable evolutionarists have to come and do work in that area too. Yeah. So now you know, you know, the evolutionary theorists are going to ruin aesthetics just like they've ruined ethics. Yeah, and, um, um, and so yeah, I mean, that to me is 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 is, is you know one of the really bad consequences of of. of of philistinism and i think it's why i think it's a good part of the reason i mean if you ask me what's the reason why philosophy is becoming increasingly marginal i'd say two reasons one reason is philistinism and the other reason is this ridiculous political orthodoxy that now is sort of like dominating the discipline and uh uh really creating a a really bad a bad uh toxic culture within the discipline i mean what's funny is a big deal yeah yeah what's funny is i mean you can almost you can almost put the, uh, the cart before the horse in a sense and say, um, you know, it seems almost like Philistinism explains these things precisely, right? To a certain degree, I, it does, I think. I mean, because the, you know, the other thing I was thinking was there's also just – I think that people would be less of Philistines – be less Philistine-y? Yeah, Phil- less Philistine. Philistine is a uh, Philistine. Is an adjective as well as a noun. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm gr- glad to have my grammar and vocabulary lesson in in my PhD program, but yeah. So um, you know, there's an obsession with the the idea that philosophy is aimed at discovering truth, right? Um, that we are hand in hand with science in trying to uncover facts about the world, um, and working intended with them to do that. And I think once you give that up, you realize just how much of a Philistine you might have been. Um, because if you just take philosophy to be something that should be illuminating or insightful, right, and these things are understood not necessarily as linked to truth, though sometimes that can be what comes out of being insightful, right? Um, as soon as you understand philosophy more broadly like that, you realize that Philistinism is a problem, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, it's had... Con- really bad consequences in in philosophy, I think. Um, and um, you know, in terms of the broader culture, look, I mean, I don't want to put too sort of you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to get too sort of expansive with this and sort of find find philistinism at the root of every problem. But it's hard to not see the, the role that it played in the last election. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> You can say, I mean, that was, you know, a victory for the ultimate, you know, for the world's greatest Philistine, right? Right. Um, um, and yeah, I think that he partly ran, I think he partly ran, he partly ran on Philistinism, right? I mean, to a certain degree. Um, um, That's the thing, man. He, he actually just reflects more broad, you know, sentiments of yeah. the society at large, right? Yeah, yeah I, I very much think he's a mirror, not a not Exactly, a cause, so right? do I, so um, do I. Um, He's exactly who we who we deserve. Um, it seems to me, um, um, you know, society that if you look at our popular media, our popular culture, I mean, you know, Trump is clearly what we want. I mean, you know, right. people 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 who don't want Trump don't want Jersey Shore either, right? Right, um, and don't want you know all this this this, this trash. Um, all right, so so what so so 
where do we yes, where do we want to go right. after this? So, so, yeah, oh, yeah. so that was discussing broadly what some of the problems were. Right. Um, so why is this a problem? How does this? Yeah. So what what are, what do the arts and letters do for us then? Okay. So that's that's so this is this is this is the part that you know sort of really matters, right? I mean, um, and so I start. So, so let me just say one thing about this that's not a view that's not a view that originates with me. Um, but, but goes, but goes back and talk about that a little bit. And then I'll talk about my own distinctive take on this. So I started the essay with a quote from Leo Tolstoy. So Leo Tolstoy obviously is most famous as, you know, probably the greatest Russian novelist. The only other one that would be close would be Dostoevsky. Um, and I, and I, and I'm inclined to think Tolstoy is uh, even, even, even greater than Dostoevsky. Um, but people don't know so much is that Tolstoy actually also was an est- worked in aesthetics mm. and wrote a major book on a, on aesthetics, on the philosophy of art, um, which is actively used in, aste- in aesthetics education. In other words, when you teach philosophy of art, this is one of the things you teach, right? I mean, and so it's part of the curriculum. And um, Tolstoy assigned a very, very high value to art because of the role that he sees it as playing. So for Tolstoy, what an artwork is, is something that expresses the emotions of the artist. But it doesn't just express the emotions of the artist. It evokes the same emotions in the audience. And so it's a means of communication between artist and audience, but it's also a means of communication between the members of the audience, right? In a sense, the audience who experiences the work of art and the artist all together share a common set of experiences, right? Yeah. And what Tolstoy says, and he's rightly so because this is what this is, this essentially is a force for for human empathy, right? All right. It connects us at the, at the, at the, at the emotional level, at the level of sense and at the level of sensibility. Right. Um, and he thinks that this is at the root of creating, uh, humane, healthy, humane culture. Right. Um, because from that connection, then grows things like sympathy, like things, you know, things like sympathy and beneficence and other things that are the reasons why we treat, treat, we treat each other well. And so Tolstoy says, and he's not exaggerating, that he literally thinks that art is as important as speech. Mm. He says, by way of speech yeah. and write and, and non-artistic writing, we communicate knowledge. Yes, yes. And by way of arts and letters, we communicate emotions. And you need to do both to create a, a, a cohesive, coherent society and culture. Um, I'll just, I've got the quote pulled up, so I'll just read it. It's very yeah. short. Um, Tolstoy says, art is a means of union among men, joining them together in the same feelings and indispensable for the life and progress towards well-being of individuals and of humanity. If men lack this capacity of being infected by art, people might be more savage still and above all more separated from and more hostile to one another. So, you know, Tolstoy clearly assigns a tremendous uh, role, not just a tremendous role, but a tremendous value because of that role to the arts. And, and so, so he's, he's the one I always look to 
not necessarily for the specifics of my view, but it's always the person I've looked to. If people ask me, okay, why is this important? Why isn't this just entertainment? Why shouldn't we just throw this? Why shouldn't we just treat this as the lowest priority? Tolstoy is the first person I point to. He said, okay, here's, here's, here's one way of thinking about it in which you could see how art could be really important, right? Yeah. And not something that's dispensable, not something that's the lowest priority, but amongst the highest uh, priority, right? Yeah. Now, my own view isn't necessarily – did, did you want to say something about that? Just something brief. You know, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Union among, this idea of the union among men, I think it, it should be underscored that this doesn't necessarily just mean union amongst presently living people, right? That's right. Union amongst past people as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, in a way that's very difficult to convey in something like a history textbook, right? That's why we like, for example, um, literature that does historical reenactment kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, it yeah. gives you a kind of connection with the past that you never really could get from certain kinds of technical works. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I would say that to a certain, to the extent to which that's the case <laughs> without the arts, without arts and letters, it's hard to see, you know, the way in which you can fully really say that, you know, one belongs to the same civilization as one's predecessors, right? As one's ancestors, yeah. as one, one's grandparents, as one, you know, um, 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 it's precisely because we're connected, not just to our contemporaries, but to those in the, before us, yeah. um, connected in our sensibilities, right? So, you know, these, you know, Shakespeare brings together, and not just our, you know, contemporary people with one another, but connects us to people going back, you know, centuries. Yeah. Um, and and creates and it's one of the things that makes for a civilization, a culture, a people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to imagine the creation of something you'd call a people yeah. without this kind of connection. Right. Yeah. Um, it also, you know, it also, it also situates, sit, just situates you as an individual in a long narrative of history. And it, it can shape your own goals and roles in society as well. How you see yourself, what your place is. Yeah. No, I think um, that's right. I, mean, I, I think it shouldn't be, um, you know, underemphasized the importance to the individual in addition to society as a whole. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, continue. You were going to say, no, no, so, so that's, that, no, that's good. I mean, in terms of the way I think of it, I mean, it's not, it's not at odds with Tolstoy, but I'm sort of, it's maybe at a, at a lower level of, uh, of analysis. And that is, it seems to me that the chief thing that the that arts and letters do aside for entertain, and, and I, I want to emphasize, I am not denying that, that they do, that they do entertain, and I'm not denying even that that's, I actually think that the value of that is itself underestimated, right? Um, you know, we live in kind of this, with this demented kind of Protestant work ethic, right? Um, and especially, in, you know, in the United States and, 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 and we view even leisure um, as something that is a very low priority. Um, um, in, in other words, I don't want to, you know, the Philistine dismisses um, arts and letters as mere entertainment. Um, and I don't want to deny their entertainment, but I'm going to want to, I'm going to want to very strongly reject the mere part of it. Right. 
Um, I don't think that there's anything mere about entertainment or about leisure. Um, but that said, um, aside from that function, which certainly art uh, performs, um, arts and letters, and, and again, that includes uh, even as things as far out as, as cuisine, what, I, what they do is they, they deepen and render, they deepen, broaden, and render more discriminate one's capacity to experience across the modalities, right? Yeah. Let me, let me give you an example, right? So, I mean, this is this, so Hume in his essay of the standard of taste talks about the characteristics of the authoritative critic, the critic whose judgments you should, whose, whose value judgments about artworks you should take seriously. And one of the things that he really stresses is that the, the authoritative critic has to have what he called, what Hume calls delicacy of the imagination. And what that unpacks into is what I've just said, right? The capacity to um, experience deeply, broadly, and discriminately, right? Not yes. indiscriminately, discriminately, right? And this, these, this, these, this capacity is, is acquired through repeated engagement with arts and letters. It's the only way it's acquired, right? It's yeah. not something that can be taught in a classroom or anything like that. The only way to get better at seeing is to look yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> the only way to get better at tasting is to taste a lot, right? The only way to get better at hearing is to listen a lot. <laughs> and so yeah. I give examples in the essay with respect to the development of one's palate, right? Yeah. So the ability, you know, if you'd asked me when I was, you know, 19, 18 years old, if you'd given me, you know, a Highland Scotch, a Lowland Scotch, an Isla Scotch, I wouldn't have been able to tell the difference between them, right? Right. Uh, and I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference between a 12-year, a 15-year, or a 10-year. You know, in other words, the ability to make those kinds of distinctions, which, if you think about it, is the ability to perceive in a more detailed yeah. fashion, right? Yes. Requires repeated um, engagement with the thing in question. Yeah. Same thing with visual arts. Yep. Um, you know, uh, not just to be able to distinguish between, let's say, a pre-impressionist and impressionist, the different types, um, um, the post-impressionism. It's not just that. It's it's even um, deeper. The ability to just to see things in works of art, right? So you know, the capacity to 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 benefit from the experience of, let's say, abstract art requires a lot of training and perception, right? Clive, yeah. Be Clive Bell talks about this in his book, Art, about, about the capacity to, to really experience significant form, right? Requires that the eye really be trained, and the way that the eye gets trained is by exposure to a lot of art. Same thing with hearing. So you, you're getting my point, right? Yeah. The, what what art do is they train the sensibility, Yes. Um, um, and then the question becomes, well, why is it good to have a really trained sensibility? And I think that's something that I can answer, right? Yeah. Um, 
Um, yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things. There's one, yeah. thing, there's one thing I want to add in here. Um, but just to recapitulate a little bit what you were just saying, I mean, one thing that I think is super important, um, or two things that I think you've basically mentioned, which are super important as part of your kind of perceptual capacities, is being able to make just finer grain discriminations amongst, I mean, I hate to put it in this way because it sounds sciencey, but stimuli, right? Just generally, just an ability to discriminate between stimuli in a way that you couldn't before. Yeah. That's one thing. But the other thing is the ability to chunk things together, which you wouldn't have been able to chunk and see. To make connections. To make connections, yeah. Yeah. So you can discriminate things finely, (laughs) and you can chunk things together, which you never would have been able to before. And, you know, one thing that I I always want to say to, you know, scientism people who, uh, you know, if I talk about this kind of thing with them is – that's precisely what you're trying to learn in logic, right? How to see when it's appropriate to look at a, um, a proposition as just an individual proposition as opposed to a more complex, uh, as to a part of a more complex one, right? Um, these kinds of perceptual capacities happen when you learn things like logic or like science. But the thing is, they're not transferable to all subject matters of life, right? We all know of the scientist or the logician who just is a buffoon when it comes to the arts and interpreting literature and even maybe when engaging with his own experience in life, right? Yeah. Um, yeah because I, 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 I think that this, this capacity, this developed, this fully developed, fully ripened sensibility um, isn't just crucial to getting the most out of the arts, I think it's crucial to the successful navigation of life and to getting the most out of life. Yeah. I think that one's life is impoverished. Yeah. When one has a contracted or shrunken or poorly developed sensibility. Um, I think, I think, I think one's life is impoverished by it. Um, um, And so, um, yeah, here's one of the ways in which I think that life is impoverished by not engaging with fiction and stuff like this. I think you can put it in terms of the imagination a little bit as well. So I, I personally think, tell me what you think of this, that the things that we're curious about are the things that we're capable of imagining. So, I'm, I'm not very curious to learn much more about abstract mathematics, right? And I think a big part of that is just I don't really have the capacity or the, school, the, the tool sets to really imagine what it would be like that's cool about doing abstract mathematics or abstract physics, right? right. Um, or maybe certain kinds of <laughs> occupations. Right. Um, and, you know, this is exactly, I think, how advertising presumably works, right? Is it gives you a way to imagine yourself wanting to do or being able to do whatever thing they're advertising, right? So when you're thinking about which coffee to have, you can imagine what it would be like to drink the Starbucks coffee. And so you're more curious about what that's actually like. Um, this is why I actually don't believe people completely or I think there's something not quite right when they say I'm just curious about everything. Um, there's a certain degree to which I just don't, I just don't buy it. Um, and that's because if you're, if you're curious about all the things that you can't imagine to the same extent that you are the things you can't imagine, I'm not sure what sense of curiosity you have as opposed to just desire to do everything. Right. Um, and so look, we need curiosity as a basic thing for development, right. Um, to know what we, to figure out what we might want to do in life. Uh, Yeah. Thing. And yeah. you know, that requires some imagination and fiction really facilitates that kind of stuff. 
Well, I think just in general, I mean, I mean, I you know, look, I mean, there's a kind of there are kinds of curiosities, right? I mean, certainly the scientist is motivated by curiosity. At least a lot of scientists science is motivated by curiosity. Um, um, and certainly philosophy is, <clears throat> but I guess what I'm going to want to say is that science and philosophy only train a relatively narrow band of modalities. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think what's partly what you're getting at is, and thus when you have a very narrowly trained set of modalities, the things you can be curious about are pretty limited. They're limited exactly. to the things that those modalities can engage. Um, 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 and um, <clears throat> now, of course, a lot of them, what they're going to say is that, well, that's, those are the only things there are to engage. The rest is bullshit, right? I mean, someone like Alex Rosenberg, who is like, you know, other than Singer, probably the most Philistine philosopher I could imagine, just in terms of his attitude towards, because he's, you know, the most hardcore kind of eliminative materialist, right? Um, yeah. He's just going to say, well, those things just don't exist. They're just made up, right? And so there's no, no nothing to be curious about. Um, um, and, um, and, yeah. so, and so, I mean, I agree with you. I think, I think one's curiosity is somewhat constrained to those modalities that have been sufficiently developed that one can even imagine what one would be curious about in that area. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I, that's what I think at root engagement with arts and letters does. It, it, it allows one sensibility to fully develop by which I mean in terms of breadth, depth and discrimination, right? Those, those three things are what, engagement with the arts uh, provide us with. Now, I guess the next question then is, well, why is, the, why is it valuable to have those things? Right? Yeah. We've, we've already alluded to some of this, actually. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we can look at that on two levels also. You know, one would be that the, the kind of more social level, the societal level, and, and the individual level. Um, and I'd be curious to hear what you think about, you know, any one of those or all of them. Yeah, I mean, so so. For one thing, I agree with Tolstoy, and I think Hume would agree with this too, right? I mean, that that without a developed sensibility, one is approach one approaches moral questions from a purely rational perspective, and in my view, it's not possible to be properly ethical in that way, right? Um, in, in other words, um, um, I don't see I don't see how you get any values without the engagement of the sensibility. In other words, value just is what matters to people, right? Right, right, right. Something is valuable if it matters to someone, right? I mean, that's that's the only sense of value that's left in the modern era, right? After, yeah. after sort of the, 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 rem, the removal, the deteleo, the deteleologizing of the world, right? Yeah. Uh, the only values that are left are the values that arise out of things mattering to people, right? And if you have a crude, undeveloped, you know, indiscriminate sensibility, that's going to affect, you know, your values, right? Yeah. And I don't think it's an accident, you know, you know, 
people hold up Peter Singer as sort of you know, a paragon of moral virtue, I, I don't think so, right? Yeah. I don't think that those are people, the sorts of people that I would admire uh, morally, right? Um, for all the reasons, you know, I've, 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 I've mentioned this piece a thousand times simply because it's so good and it, and it, and it goes so far, I think, towards making the point. That's Susan Wolf's Moral Saints, right? Right. Well, um, I mean, it's very rare in philosophy that you get, like, pretty good takedowns that seem to basically just be things people either have to, you know, admit are right and then abandon their position or just decide to try and systematically not talk about it again. Right. <laughs> and hers is one of those essays, right? So... Right. And look, I mean, and, and look, we can, if we want to, we can sort of feel, I, I feel the same, the same thing, by the way, is true of beauty. Right. And so, and so, um, there is no way to properly engage with the beautiful, um, either to experience it or to create it yourself without a very well-developed sensibility. Right. Um, and, and there's a parallel to both, and there's, and there's a sort of a, a connection to both of these, to both moral value and aesthetic value. <clears throat> and that is that <clears throat> at a certain level, moral and aesthetic uh, value only exists at the level of particulars. It does not exist at the level of general types, right? And so, I mean, so, so the case of aesthetics is the easiest to see. So there's a very famous essay by a statistician named Frank Sibley called Aesthetic Concepts, where Sibley really ruthlessly demonstrates that there is no rational way to ground any aesthetic concept, right? That, that any aesthetic concept, um, uh, let's take one, uh, delicate, okay, is an aesthetic concept, right? Denotes an aesthetic property. Um, there are no necessary and sufficient conditions for something's being delicate. That is, you cannot, as a general matter, say if something is has the property of delicacy, then it will have these other properties, right? And it simply goes through a painstaking uh, process yes. to show why that's 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 not the case. Um, why that's the case? Um, um, that there are no uh, uh, rational grounds or conditions for the application of the word delicate to something. Um, Delicacy is something that can only be seen, right? Yeah. And it can only be seen in the particular thing. So you can all, you're only gonna, you're only going to reliably ascribe the word delicacy to things upon actually seeing them. Now notice the difference. I could give you a perfect description of something. Yes. But the terms I would use to describe it are all terms that denote general properties. And what Sibley wants to say is there are no sets of general properties that are sufficient for something's being delicate or beautiful. Right. right. Or sentimental or funny or any of the, right, that, that these properties only arise in the engagement with the particular thing. Right. Yeah. So you can, you can see that something is delicate. You cannot deduce that something is delicate, which means. Yeah. Nothing in philosophy or science is going to help you with this. Right? Yeah. Now, the same thing is true for morals. Right? The same thing is true for morals. Um, Aristotle thinks this. Aristotle very famously says that general reasoning only gets you very, very 
short distance towards virtue. Yes, I can generally reason that virtue, the virtuous thing to do always represents the mean between the vicious things to do, which are always extremes either of excess or deficiency. But whether this specific action is the right thing to do is something that Aristotle thinks can only be seen. Yeah. And that's because the particular is not under the province of reason. Yeah. Um, But only under the under, uh, but it's only accessible by way of perception. Yeah. And so literally speaking, you need to train your sensibility in the way that only the arts, arts and letters can in order to be capable, in my view, of moral virtue and of, of both the experience and the ability to create uh, beauty. Right. Yeah. So, so those are two things that I would say are tremendously yeah. valuable. <laughs> in, fact, in fact, you know, th- this point also can connect up with, with some stuff in moral philosophy, which is um, look, there's a lot of discussion right now about, um, you know, being culpable for being ignorant, for not seeing something when you should have seen it, right? Um, so you, um, and, and my thought is a lot of culpable moral ignorance comes precisely from the fact that people might have a theory in mind about, like, how you should behave. Right. When it comes to actually, insta- even, you know, even if you wanted to instantiate your theory in the world, you're frequently going to have to engage with the particular to see how that should be done, right? And a lot of people are unable to do that, um, to engage with the particulars and to come up with a moral, you know, valence of the scenario. And so instead, they'll just resort to just a blanket theory that tells them what they should do, right? It's almost, it's, it's almost like a theory is a crutch for a bad representational capacity of this kind, right? Right, right. I mean, that's why, you know, in a sense for Aristotle, I mean... If you've got the perception, you don't need the philosophy. Yeah. And without the perce- without the philo- without the perception, no amount of the philosophy is going to help you to identify what the right thing to do is. Um, um, another person, you know, who who's who's who who has a similar view uh, is W. D. Ross, right? Um, who who yeah. viewers and readers of mine will know. I'm I'm also a huge fan of. And again, Ross says, "Look, you know, I can identify." you know, rationally, what are my prima facie duties, right? And so given my relationships to various people, given the things that people did, I can sort of say, okay, you know, I have a prima facie duty to, 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 you know, repay, a, repay a kindness. I have a, I have a duty to keep a promise and so on and so forth. Um, but of course, one can imagine any number of circumstances in which these duties can be overridden, right? And yeah. one can override the other. And so what Ross says is that my actual duty, in contrast with my prima facie duty, my actual duty can only be determined when I examine all of my, pre- my prima facie duties and the specific context that, in which I'm being called upon to act. Um, and I have to decide in that context which duty is the most pressing. Now, again, this is something that can only be seen. It can't be deduced, right? Yeah. The deducing only gets you as far as figuring out what the prima facie duties are. And even there, I, I would argue it's limited what it can do, right? You, that you, you have to, in a sense, feel your relationships in order to, 
to really get the, the prima facie duties out. But let's even grant that, you know, radiocination can get you up to a certain point. But in any given circumstance, figuring out, determining which duty of, of among my prima facie duties, which is the most pressing, that's something that can only be seen. Yeah. And in order to be able to see it, to be able to see it requires a pretty sophisticated uh, perception. I mean, look at one, one that one that requires development, right? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me also of you know how every time you read you read a novel, you can think of two different two or three maybe different main themes to the story, right? And the only way to figure out which one seems most compelling to you as a main theme of the story is to go back and reread it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then figure out which one seems to come out as just the most coherent with that story, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, these capacities that we're, we've been talking about, that, yeah, they apply to the moral and they're, they're clearly present in, in these, you know, reading literature and whatnot. This idea of just perceptually seeing what's being, you know, what's the most compelling story or what's the most compelling duty that you might have in a particular scenario. Yeah, and look, I mean... no one would ever have to prove to me or convince me that, that this is the case because I see it, you know, every year I teach a course in philosophy where the entire reading list consists of literature. There is no actual technical philosophy in it. There's just novels. And you, you actually, you, you spent a few months with us and you actually set in on this class, right? I did. Um, and, Students are able, the literature provides a way for students to engage with social, political, ethical, cultural topics, right, in the real world. Yes. That I'm not so sure would be as effectively achieved via a sociology course, right? Yeah. Right. right. Um, um, you know, so right now, you know, I'm teaching, I'm teaching a course um, where the entire course is devoted to the novels of Philip K. Dick, right? And, um, you know, we're just finding that the books are a treasure trove, right? So, for example, and we, we just read Man, we just, we just finished reading The Man in the High Castle. Um, and, you know, at the heart of it is this, it's an alternative history, right? It's a history in which the Allies uh, lost the Second World War. The Japanese and the Ger the Axis won the Second World War. The Japanese and the Germans divided the United States up so the Germans control the eastern seaboard, the Japanese control uh, the west coast, and then there's some free states in the middle. Um, but then there is a book within the book. There's a book, an illegal book that's being circulated that in the in in the world of the man in the high castle is uh, is a fiction that tells the story in which the allies won the second world war and the axis lost right oh wow right so it's a it's a it's, so the our actual history is a novel inside the alternate history right <laughs> and one of the things that this really got us talking about was what kind of facts historical facts are now, this is something you could discuss in a historiography class. It's something that you could discuss in a philosophy of history class if anybody taught those anymore, which they don't. Um, um, but I don't know that it would have been as effective to press upon students that 
question, that issue, what kind of a fact is it an historical fact, right? And yes. in a sense, going through a kind of virtual experience of history, sh- the historical ground under your feet shifting, right? Yes. There's something in there's, in the experience. There, there, there is a the, then there develops a capacity a, 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 to see, to, and I mean see issues and questions that I'm not sure would arise as spontaneously, naturally, inevitably, as if you know I, I was teaching a, a historiography course in a history department and yeah. giving them theories about historical facts and what kinds of things they are right. I mean, the other thing that I really love about it is it, it, it forces them to engage the level of their own experience, too, right? So with something like a historiography class or a sociology class, it's much more difficult to enter the discussion at the level of how you feel things should be conceptualized today, right? right. Based off of my experience, what I've seen with the way that the world works at this time. And fiction's great at doing that, at promoting a discussion that just methodologically gets the students to start thinking what's going on in my life that has meaning for this subject matter, right? And for me. And that's very different from just getting people to abstract theorize about stuff and just only look for evidence in, in textbooks and things like that. I do think it's very important to bring to the table, um, you know, experiential things that you, you've seen, right? Um, yeah. this is how you give, a, I mean, this is how you give a voice to your own views, if nothing else, right? You, yeah. you, you inflect it with, with personal anecdotes that are compelling that people can relate to. Yeah. Um, I don't think that that's just rhetoric either. Um, yeah. And it may, and, it, and I wonder if it may, what it means is, is that the importance of engagement with the particular extends way beyond the, the two areas, the main areas that I mentioned, and that is ethics and, 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 and aesthetics, right? And that is, you know, if it's the case that this kind of engagements with art, arts and letters in which really, in a sense, what you're doing is you're exercising your, sensibi- your sensibility by engagement with created particulars, right, is in a sense what you're, what you're doing, um, that it's so useful even in the approach to subjects that are typically taught in a ratiocinative way, right? I think so. I mean, right? I, I, mean so. I mean, I mean, you can do ethnography through food. You know, I really, you know, I, I, I'm really of the view that you can learn a hell of a lot about a people by their cuisine, from their cuisine, yeah, from consuming their cuisine. Um, um, and um, because the cuisine itself is an expression of the people. Yes. Right. Um, um, which is why when you, when you, when, you know, I said this in the essay, you know, when you cut, when you, when you deny yourself these experiences, part of what you're doing is you're actually cutting yourself off from other people. Yes. Yes. That's right. Um, um, actually that wasn't in this essay. That was in another essay, which was more of a sort of a rant. Um about uh about about food but uh which i'll link to also um and i so also I, think you leave yourself vulnerable to having discriminations made for you right hmm. like this is um so i mean that's part of what, one of the best abilities to learn as an adult is the, just the ability to make fine discriminations on your own and the thing is i i suspect for example that a lot of people 
can't do this well. And what they do is just they uptake the discriminations that other people have made for them. And they became, they be, you know, they basically end up categorizing the world in ways that other people have created for them. It's almost like it goes back to Orwell from Politics yeah. and Language, right? This is how you make ready-made phrases for people is you cut the distinctions for them. Yeah. And if they can't, if they don't have the perceptual capacity to cut distinctions for themselves, they're just going to accept yours, right? And they then, have their thinking done for them. And that's a general point about, yeah. you know, that can happen in science, that can happen in mathematics, that can happen wherever, right? Yeah. Anytime someone else has made the distinctions for you, you just think in line with their categories, right? Yeah. Yeah, right? no, I think, that, I think that's right. And I mean, I, I, you know, the food example, you know, I just, um, so there's a really, really great documentary on Netflix, which I'll link to. It's called In Search of Israeli Cuisine. And I was so impressed by this that I actually, so last semester I was still the, um, the uh, adult advisor for our synagogue's youth group. And the youth group are po- pe- kids who are post-bar mitzvah but pre- pre-college, so they're still in high school. And um, because Sunday school pretty much ends once, once you have your bar mitzvah. Yeah, and um, so you know, I was always looking for activities to do with them, and this um, documentary on Israeli cuisine was so uh, compelling to me that I created an activity. I said, you know, let's to get get together and cook an Israeli meal, and then watch the documentary. Right. And what was so extraordinary about it? So, so. Israel is, is, is one of the ultimate melting pot countries, right? In terms of just the sheer number of different cultures that are represented in the country, and because it's a very physically small country and very compact, that diversity is all in a very tight space, right? Um, um, yeah. So it's every variety of Jew, because, you know, the Jews uh, came to Israel from the diaspora, which means they were literally all over the planet, right? So you have all the different places from which Jews came, culturally represented, as well as any number of Arab Arab uh, 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 cultures and sub subcultures within, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so Palestinians, you know, uh, uh, Druze, um, um, and even within these population, you know, Christian, Palestinian, you have Christian and, and Muslim, all this other. Okay, yeah. so. Tremendous variety, right? And so if you really want to understand Israel, Israeli culture, um, <clears throat> even Israeli people, right? You know, you could take, you know, sociology courses and you could, you know, uh, and study them in the way that social sciences do. And you would learn certain things about, about it that way. But what this documentary shows is that you can also learn an awful lot just by eating your way through all the different cuisines that are represented. Yeah. And that way you learn something about the people, the place, the culture that you, in a way that you couldn't through a social scientific analysis. In other words, in my view, you need both. To yes. fully understand a people, a civilization, a society, a culture, you need both. You can't yes. just study it scientifically. You also have to immerse yourself in it 
One of the ways to do that is to consume its food. Another way to do that is to investigate and engage with its arts, right? Um, no Westerner who's been confronted with Japanese or Chinese music doesn't recognize that it's an entirely different way of hearing. Yes. Yeah. At first glance, it sounds like nothing. It sounds like like atonal, weird, just no, nothing, right? And I would argue that as you become learn how to hear that music, you understand, you come to understand things about those people in a way that no amount of sociological study or analysis would give you, right? Yeah. And that it's crucial. And I almost wonder, I almost wonder whether, this is just wild speculation, but I almost wonder whether some of our international difficulties are due more and more to the fact that our only information about other people comes through academics, right? Mm. We don't learn foreign languages anymore. Yeah. We don't travel. I mean, we don't travel in a meaningful way, meaning we don't travel yeah. with the aim of immersing ourselves um, in other people's cultures. We go there and we look for the McDonald's and, you know. Right. Um, and no, so, I mean, that's not, even, that's not even a lie, though, right? You, it's not necessarily that you look for the McDonald's, but you look for familiar things, right? Um, sources of familiarity that you'll be a little more comfortable with when you try and embed yourself in the community. Right. Uh, not, I don't want to say the community because that's putting it too strongly. Just embed yourself in the area. Yeah. yeah. I, totally, I totally see what you mean. Yeah. So I think that this is, you know, to, to wrap this all up, because um, I don't want to, we shouldn't go too long. Um, the value of it is tremendous, right? It's not just that without this development of one's ability to see, hear, smell, taste, right? There's no morality in my view, right? Uh, and in Tolstoy's and in Hume's <laughs> and in Aristotle's, right? Right. Good company to be in, right? Um, <laughs> there's also no, there's no beauty. There's no, there's no creation of it and there's no uh, 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 capacity to experience it and appreciate it. But I would go even farther and say, even in the areas in which we traditionally look to the more ratiocinative scientific modes by which to understand them, there are crucial dimensions that can only be understood in this other way. Yeah. Because they involve engagement with the particular at the level of sensibility, right? Yeah. Um, um, and exactly. especially those things that involve people, right? Yeah. Culture, exactly. society. You know, it's kind of funny. A lot of, a lot of the greatest scientific advancements in medicine were quote unquote on accident that were found in particulars, Right. In particular instances, when scientists are, have learned to pay attention yeah. and make fine-grained discriminations about what they're seeing with whatever organisms they're studying or whatever, yeah. and yeah. so yeah, I, I would you know it seems pretty evident actually that a lot of a lot of our scientific discoveries come from this, these capabilities people have to engage at the level of the particular, which gets lost out at the at the general level of analysis. Yeah, no, I think that's yeah. right. I think that's right. So, so. No, I, I would totally agree. It's not just a defense of the humanities. It's also a defense and advocation that humanities type thought should actually enter the picture more in certain scientific. Yeah. It's a defense of understanding, right? It's defense of understanding. In other yeah. words, if what we care, if what we are after is understanding, we have to recognize that it does, it does that, that, 
with, with only the modalities provided by science and philosophy, understanding must always be incomplete, right? Yeah. And not incomplete with respect to a trivial part of it, right? Incomplete with regard to sort of central aspects of it, um, um, which is why I think, you know, this, this, this hatcheting, this, 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 this evisceration of arts and letters education um, is, a, is a catastrophe, right? I mean, I mean, it's really bad. Yeah. And um, I, I think, you know, we're not yet seeing the full fruits of it because the people who it's being done to are still young and developing, right? In another generation or two, we'll see the real effects of this, right? I, I, I actually think it's, re, it's a really, really dangerous thing to, to take out the humanities. I mean, we didn't get to it, but I actually think that some of the biggest coercive influences on us right now come from things like advertising and certain forms of just biased media, which we would probably call propaganda, at least in the classical term outlined by Edward Bernays, right? Um, And I honestly believe that the solution to being able to spot and decide for yourself which quote-unquote propaganda you think is permissible and what propaganda is trying to tell you or what advertising is trying to tell you um, comes from looking at the arts and, and letters, um, yeah, well, I think I think it's fair to say that by in propaganda, one one manipulates the mind by way of an attack on the sensibility, right? Yeah. Um, the manipulation of the sensibility. Exactly. And the only defense against it, it seems to me, is will come from a well developed autonomous sensibility, right? Yes. Um. Um. Uh, and I think that that's right. Um, um, yeah. Um, In fact, there's this one. There's this one perfect example, actually. Very, just the other night, I was listening to. I was randomly listening to various music as I was trying to work on an essay. And this one music video for, um, uh, actually, for Kanye West came up. <laughs> I know. Hey, hey, man. Look, it's just for an example. All right, just for an example. The nadir uh, of music, right? Huh? <laughs> the nadir of music. Right. The <laughs> but so the um, the the song title is um, Heard Him Say, okay? And um, the, a lot of the song has to do with things like what we're told um, that we can expect in society. So, you know, things like we can expect an afterlife. Uh, we can expect maybe, like, the chance that we'll get rich and, and move up in, you know, class mobility. Uh, maybe the chance that people will be kind to us in the future and that we, you know, uh, will die a kind of easy death. But the idea is... While he said, you know, while the song title is heard him say, one of the song lyrics is also nothing ever promised tomorrow is promised today. And what he means by that is, I think, something like, well, look, um, you're told all of these things, but not, none of them are promises, right? Anything you're told today, nothing's really a promise tomorrow. The yeah. lottery isn't, your good health isn't, you're in a, it's a familiar thing. But the idea is it gets you to start thinking in terms of how information from different modalities is coming in, right? I mean, I yeah. look at the song title, and that is enough to structure how I hear the lyrics, right? The same goes with advertising. What does TV do, right? It'll give you kind of snippets of verbal information and then get you to think about what the audio means, right? And yeah. what the images mean and things like that. And so I just think that there's so much, like you said, it's an attack on the sensibilities. It's an attack on these representational capacities. And, to develop them is to develop autonomy in that realm, right? Yeah. 
No, I agree with that. And it's funny. I mean, Kant in his essay, what is enlightenment called us to sort of a kind of intellectual autonomy. Um, um, and I guess to a certain degree, an ethical autonomy, but there's also a kind of a emotional autonomy, right? Um, and I, I, I do think that the, the better developed, the, the more experienced and the better developed your sensibility, the greater resistance you'll have to, to this sort of thing. Um, um, yeah. Just because, you know, inevitably there's a crudeness to it that almost depends upon a kind of lack of sophistication on the audience, right? On the part yeah. of the audience. Um, um, the, the, for, for, for a well-honed ear or a well-honed eye, um, certain things just can be seen as, you know, yeah. manipulative, yeah. manipulative or, um, um, uh, uh, and even, disingenuous, even, um, and even in cuisine, right? Yeah. So even in cuisine, so you can just tell, um, you can just tell if you've developed a palate, which things are being manufactured for just mass consumption yeah. and yeah. just going to exploit, um, a lack of fine grain perceptual detail. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. certain kinds of really shitty candy, right? It's just yeah. like, just let's just give you sugar. Yeah. And that's all that you need. Right. Yeah. 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 Look, I mean, I mean, the, the the, the the poorly developed palate is most easily appealed to by way of the easiest taste, and that's sweet and salty, right? Yeah. And so it's not a surprise that you know, um, um, you know, I don't want to now say that you know a well developed palate is the solution to the obesity epidemic, but certainly it has something to do with it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my it's daughter, my daughter has a very well developed palate. She doesn't. She will not eat fast food. Yeah. Um, and that's in the sense you could say she sees through it, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that's why it's almost a little bit unfortunate when you see that, like, I mean, you know, so I'm still developing in my, in my palate. You're helping me with this. I've been trying to help as much. Yeah. As yeah. You've been bringing me up. You've been bringing it up. But, you know, as you, as you develop it more and more, uh, you know, it's almost unfortunate when you can see that someone's palate is being exploited, right? Um, cause you can, you can kind of see that it's like, it's almost compulsory at that point because they just can't see the fine-grained yeah. discriminations. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, this so was good did, stuff. Did we did we cover everything we wanted to cover? I think we have pretty much covered everything we wanted did to cover. Exhaust Dan. Dan. Dan is a very organized sort, and so he has a <laughs> he had a list of topics that we must discuss. And I, you know, did we cover them all? We did cover them Indeed, all. We did. We. we I should. You know, have, well, it's like it's kind of unclear sometimes with the structure because we were we were just you know all these topics were pretty related so yeah well we've talked about it we've talked about it enough in our personal uh, exchanges that I think you know we yeah. had it well down well I thank you very much uh, I, was, thanks thank you Dan I'm glad we got to engage on this particular this very was enjoyable and um, next week I'm recording with Crispin Sartwell um, and so. Uh, and actually we'll be talking about art again. We're talking about Michelangelo who he wrote a very provocative piece saying Michelangelo sucks, which will be an interesting conversation because whatever his reason, it's not Philistinism because <laughs> right. uh, you know, he's got a very well-developed uh, sensibility. And so I'm looking forward to doing that. And yeah. um, I look forward to speaking with you soon and uh, continued success and good luck down in paradise where you are. 
Thank you very much. I'll, uh, like I said, I'll continue to be, you know, to wear my bikini around campus, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Please, yeah, yeah. And, uh, if I come down to visit, you know, I try and <laughs> that shit hidden, man. If you come down to visit, you'll be wearing one too? Oh, God. <laughs> Talking about inflicting suffering on the world, yeah. man. And we'll be driving my moped around, right? Yeah, no, 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 I'll rent a car. This is just a circus performance. <laughs> All right, my friend. All right, man. Take care of yourself. Good stuff. You too. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.